Hello and welcome. I'm Andrew Vief, and this is Rebel History. The year is 1876. The place? A humble Ohio farm in the American heartland. The Stutes Bearcat Roadster was America's first sports car. Born in 1876 on a farm in Ohio, Perry Stutes grew up repairing his family's agricultural machinery. As a young man, he began designing and building cars. Before serving as chief engineer and racing driver for Marion Motor Company, the young man caught the attention of American entrepreneurs Carl Fisher and James Allison. Fisher and Allison had purchased patent rights for the manufacture of headlights, just as the automobile industry was beginning to take off. With a near monopoly, the two had become immensely wealthy. They asked Stutes to design a sporty runabout aimed at wealthy buyers for short drives around the city. Produced by their newest venture, Empire Motor Car Company, the Empire 20, or Little Aristocrat, as it was marketed, had long, lean, racy lines and a noiseless smoothness of operation. The entrepreneurs, Fisher and Allison, had also recently finished construction on an ambitious project, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. They told Stutes about plans for an epic race they devised, the Indianapolis 500. It would be a 500-mile endurance race with an unprecedented purse of over $25,000. The upcoming event had captured the attention of the nation, with racing team entries from all over the United States and Europe. Caught up in the excitement, and with only five weeks until the race, Stutes decided to enter. The steep entrance fee of $500 was meant to exclude all but the most serious racers. Working night and day, he completed the Bearcat in time for May 30th, 1911, race day. Driven by fellow engineer and racing driver, the Norwegian Gil Andersen, the Bearcat maneuvered to its start position. The field of 40 race cars lined up five to a row, their engines rumbling, blowing out black smoke. The race was a ruckus affair, with one fatality and only 12 cars finishing the race. The Bearcat finished 11th, a great triumph considering its five-week build time. Media went crazy for the story, calling it the car that made good in a day. Stutes founded his own car company and went into production using the Bearcat's race design, adding fenders and lights. It was the first car of its racing caliber offered for purchase by an American company. 
This during a time when advertisements listed only a mailing address because most people didn't have telephones. The Stutes Motor Car Company quickly became one of the top brands for performance and luxury automobiles for the rich and famous. So in 1924, as he opened the metal passenger door of the brand new Stutes Roadster, Federal Prohibition Officer William Whitney felt a wave of different emotions. Whitney was an ambitious man, having seen action as a volunteer in the Spanish-American War and then rising through the ranks of Republican politics. He would have admired the wealth that the car represented. At $3,500, the car was a small fortune, the average American salary being only $2,000 per year. Whitney was top pick for the Prohibition Director position in Washington, but a scandal with a married woman had forced him down to the number two spot under the milk toast former librarian Roy Lyle. He'd thrown away his career for a thrill, and now he pursued Seattle's bootleggers with reckless abandon and ferocity. A man like Whitney craved the speed that the Bearcat Roadster was capable of. With a top speed clearing 100 miles per hour, the Roadster was a beautiful piece of engineering. A college-aged man during the birth of the automobile, Whitney looked at this new machinery the same way we may one day look at the newest model of interplanetary vehicles. William Whitney felt a great deal of jealousy climbing into the fine leather interior. In the driver's seat, a youthful 22-year-old Alfred Hubbard gave him a smile. Broad-shouldered, with distinguished features and a strong gaze, he was dressed in a fine dark suit. He looked confident, at home, behind the wheel. In this luxury roadster, William Whitney himself would never be able to afford. But what William Whitney felt most was excitement. Excitement so intense that it threatened to overwhelm him. The young man in the seat next to him was Roy Olmsted's number two man, and he was going to flip. Al, as everyone called him, was dubbed Seattle's boy genius inventor for creating his mysterious Hubbard coil at just 19. He told friends, angels had visited him in his dreams and given him the plans. The device was a converter that transformed radioactive energy into electrical energy, which could then power anything from light bulbs to boats. This little explored technology, mystifying even trained engineers present at his demonstrations. In 1924, Hubbard found himself living near the University of Washington with his newly pregnant bride. He owned a small radio repair shop 
and had gone broke trying to build Seattle's first radio station. Around the same time, Roy Olmsted was looking to invest some of his rum-running fortune in legitimate business ventures, should his smuggling operation get busted. He went to Hubbard's shop, having heard rumors of the young engineering prodigy, and the two discussed building a radio station together. They met over several weeks, Roy ultimately deciding to move Hubbard and his wife into his white mansion in the exclusive Mount Baker neighborhood of Seattle. He paid off several thousand dollars in bad debts for the young man and bought him the Stutes Roadster. They converted the basement into a soundproof laboratory, and soon Hubbard completed a radio tower with a broadcasting studio in one of the upstairs bedrooms. In the year 1900, a Brazilian priest, Roberto Landel de Mora, was the first man to transmit the human voice wirelessly. On Christmas Eve 1906, inventor Reginald Fessenden used technology developed by Westinghouse engineers to broadcast the first AM radio program. Ships off the coast of Massachusetts enjoyed his violin rendition of O Holy Night and a passage from the Bible. The first radio news program was broadcast August 31, 1920 by station 8MK in Detroit, Michigan. So just several years later, working in the basement of Olmsted's mansion, young Al Hubbard was tinkering with a technology still very much in its infancy. Recognizing his engineering proficiency, Roy also started incorporating Hubbard in the rum-running operation. Having him fine-tune their fleet of ships and automobiles, equipping them with radios to relay commands and drop-off coordinates. It's rumored Hubbard equipped some of these vehicles with early radar technology to help evade prohibition agents. In October of 1924, Seattle's first radio station, KFQX, hit the air. Owned 50-50 by Hubbard and Olmsted, from the second floor studio, they made nightly broadcasts, with the exception of Sundays. The lineup began with news, the stock market, and weather, followed by a program entitled Aunt Vivian, in which Roy Olmsted's young British bride, Elsie, read bedtime stories to the city's young listeners. Programming concluded with performances by Seattle's top classical musicians. Rumors from the day claimed that there were secret codes embedded in Aunt Vivian's nightly stories, containing coordinates or instructions for the rum runners listening on remote beaches amongst the islands. At Elsie's suggestion, Hubbard constructed an auxiliary studio at the top of the Smith Tower, the tallest building west of Chicago at the time, and the posh interior was designed in the latest fashion. Soon, some of the 
City's hottest jazz musicians were playing live for listeners all over the region, and advertising dollars were pouring in. Recognizing Hubbard's intelligence and keen engineering ability, Olmsted slowly began involving him in the inner circle of his rum-running operation. The young inventor worked on the fleet of boats and automobiles used by the smugglers, improving their speed and reliability. He also installed radios so the crew could receive reports on Coast Guard fleet movements. Spotters stationed in strategic points throughout the Puget Sound could radio warnings, and for a short time, they even had multiple small aircraft patrolling from the air and relaying the exact positions of Coast Guard ships. Olmsted and Hubbard became friends, a deep trust growing between the two men. Hubbard was entrusted with vast sums of money as he traveled north to do business with wholesale liquor exporters in Canada, arranging purchases from their huge motherships that sat just outside U.S. waters in the Harrow Strait. Hubbard even bribed four members of the Admiralty Inlet Coast Guard blockade for $900 and several bottles of liquor, securing safe passage through Deception Pass on prearranged nights. Sitting in the stoots, relaying the whole story to Agent Whitney, Hubbard explained how his relationship with Olmsted had strained. Losing stake in the radio station and facing increased heat in the rum-running business after a recent bust by Prohibition agents at the Mount Baker mansion, Whitney listened as calmly as he could. He'd been chasing Roy Olmsted and his gang for years, with nothing to show for it. He'd been humiliated when Olmsted planned a fake liquor drop. Prohibition agents led by Whitney had surrounded a parking garage where the gang seemed to be offloading a shipment. They'd run in brandishing their guns, believing this was the breakthrough bust. Roy and his men laughed heartedly as Whitney discovered the whole thing was a setup. The scene was quickly leaked to the newspapers, and soon the whole town was laughing. At Whitney. He'd pursued Olmsted with a quiet rage, but he always seemed a step ahead. Now, here in front of him, by some miracle, sat the key to bringing Olmsted down. Hubbard's betrayal, however, would not come cheap. The brazen young man looked Whitney square in the eye and demanded that he be made a federal prohibition agent. A standard request would have been for immunity from prosecution. The idea of a 22-year-old bootlegging criminal becoming a federally appointed agent was ludicrous. Furthermore, prohibition agents were a part of the Treasury Department, and despite clearly making significant earnings over his young life, Hubbard had never paid a cent of income tax. However, Agent Whitney and his boss, Washington Prohibition Director Roy Lyle, had been told in no uncertain terms that if they didn't deliver results, they'd soon be out of a job. 
So they sought help from influential Republican Senator Wesley Jones, an ardent prohibitionist. In a letter to the leadership in Washington, D.C., they painted Hubbard as a young family man, a talented inventor who sought to right his wrongs by joining the prohibition force. They secured a meeting between Hubbard and the U.S. attorney handling the case against Olmsted, who, after a lengthy conversation, endorsed the plan. Ultimately, the political maneuvering paid off, and in October of 1925, in a secret ceremony at Whitney's law offices, Hubbard was sworn in as the nation's youngest prohibition agent and went undercover informing on Olmsted's rum-running operation. By the time his appointment came through, Al was suffering financially, and his wife had filed for divorce. He'd been forced to give up the swanky apartment he was renting, and had moved back into Olmsted's mansion. At first, Whitney and Lyle remained cautious of their new informant. Most of his initial reports were vague and mainly concerned rival operations. With only an 8th grade formal education, Hubbard had trouble writing, so he'd come to Whitney's home at night and dictate his reports to Whitney's wife, a trained stenographer. Whitney and Lyle took care to keep Hubbard's involvement in the case a secret as they collected evidence, even from their own agents except for a chosen few. In November, Olmsted's ship, the Estrella, was running a load of 170 cases down from Gooch Island in Canadian waters through Deception Pass. An hour after navigating the narrow strait, running quiet with lights extinguished, the night erupted with heavy machine gun fire from one of the Coast Guard's new cutters. Retreating into the darkness, the crew played cat and mouse with several hunting Coast Guard vessels, dodging into secluded inlets and winding around the small islands for three tense days. On the third night, fleeing a barrage of machine gun fire, the Estrella hit a submerged log, causing it to sink. In the darkness, the Coast Guard vessel missed the incident, believing the ship to have escaped. The boat sat half-submerged in the shallow water, riddled with holes from the Coast Guard machine gun. Olmsted sent Hubbard and an associate, Chris Scrondale, out in one of the other ships, the Three Deuces, to see if she could be saved. The Estrella was beyond repair, and the two men set about rescuing 60 cases of liquor from the wreck, before the would-be island sheriff and his men emerged from the trees with pistols drawn. Hubbard was taken to jail, where he phoned Whitney, who ordered him to keep quiet and promised to take care of it. However, before Whitney could act, Olmsted sent up $1,000 for bribing Sheriff Gookins to drop the charges, springing the men from jail. In the moonlit darkness of early Thanksgiving morning, Three rookie prohibition officers and one of their friends watched from the steep bluffs overlooking Woodmont Beach as the three deuces tied up to the dock. Senior agents had skipped on this anonymous tip, of which there were thousands, 
believing the rum runners were at a pause after the sinking of the Estrella and wanting to enjoy a relaxing Thanksgiving. The smugglers quickly unloaded cases of alcohol for the crew on the beach and departed back into the dark mist floating on the sound. The agents stumbled down the steep hillside, brandishing their weapons. They encountered the local deputy sheriff, who tried to convince them he was there making a bust. They placed him in cuffs and examined the rest of the crew. In a moment of disbelief, they turned their flashlights on Roy Olmsted, the kingpin himself, caught red-handed, helping to load the alcohol. The crew was detained in a nearby gazebo until backup could arrive. Roy, calm and jovial through the entire ordeal. Later, at the U.S. Commissioner's office, after posting bail, the men joked with the media that they had enjoyed a scrumptious Thanksgiving Day meal provided by the U.S. government. Whitney and Lyle were furious with Hubbard, berating him for not informing them of the liquor drop. Hubbard claimed it had been a last-minute job, not giving him the opportunity to relay the details. Their initial anger at least somewhat dampened by his explanations. They let him off the hook, but remained suspicious of his true allegiances. Deciding to double down, they attempted to introduce another undercover agent into the organization, arranging for Hubbard to introduce Agent Frank White from Chicago to Olmsted. Although he was never confronted, Agent White swore Olmsted knew he was an undercover agent from the beginning, and he was iced out of any meaningful conversations, ultimately being sent back to Chicago in January. Next episode on Rebel History. Trials, bribes, and the federal government. <laughs>